Well, good morning, church. Man, it's so good to be here with you today. And before we jump in, can all of us that are here at Broken Arrow welcome in those joining us from all of our other campuses, as well as those joining us online today. Can we give them a hand? We've got uh, Eric from California, Dana from Tennessee, plus some of our friends from Arkansas and New York, Illinois, Missouri, Honduras, and Egypt, just to name a few. And so we're so glad that you guys have joined us today. And uh, as always, if you're watching online, we would love for you to share the experience. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or our website, go ahead and share the link. Invite some people to join in with you. And uh, we'd love to also send you a gift to let you know that as a church, we are committed to you. And so you can fill out one of those online connect cards, and uh, we would love to be able to do that. Now, if you were with us here at the beginning of this year, uh, we did a series called As It Is in Heaven. In fact, we said that really, as a church, that this was more than just a series, that this was something we were committed to, that we wanted to see things here on earth as they are in heaven. And so to start this year, we began with a week of, of prayer and fasting. We did justice in our community by serving alongside of our community partners. And I love that we didn't just stop there. In fact, we still have community groups, not only from this campus, but from all of our campuses that are continuing to serve in our community as a result of some of those relationships that we've built. In fact, this last weekend, if you didn't know, we had students from all six of our campuses that took time out of their spring break to go and serve our community. Can we give them a hand? I mean... It is truly a glimpse of heaven here on earth. But when you think about heaven here on earth, have you ever considered what heaven will be like? I mean, if we really want to bring heaven here on earth, then we should have some understanding of what heaven is like. And personally, I'm, I'm just convinced that heaven is going to be a lot like Hawaii. I don't know how many of you are praying for that. I certainly am praying for that. And, and I think that uh, it's not just what makes uh, heaven great. It's not just what it looks like. But I believe that what will make heaven phenomenal is who will be there. I mean, we think about the, the energy of an arena. You know, the, the energy of a stadium. It, it doesn't come from how new or how beautiful the stadium is. The energy comes from the people that fill it. And the truth is that if we want to see heaven here on earth, then we need to fill the earth with people that are destined for heaven. We need to fill the earth with people who are carrying the presence of God. We need to invite people into a relationship with Christ. After all, for those of us who are believers, if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then proclaiming the gospel, that is our primary calling. We have a responsibility to share the gospel, uh, to share the grace that we've received. And, and that's why we say here at Battle Creek all the time that found people find people. And I know what some of you may be thinking. You may think, Josh, but I don't have that spiritual gift of evangelism. And that may be true. We all have different gifts according to what God has given to us. In fact, earlier this year, I made a Super Bowl prediction and if you heard that, then you know that I don't have the gift of prophecy <laughs> because I was dead wrong. In fact, every spiritual gift assessment that I've ever taken, I'm pretty sure mercy actually scores negative 
on the test. I mean, it is very low, but just because mercy scores low doesn't mean that I'm excused from being merciful. And if proclaiming the gospel is the primary calling for us as believers, then we all are called to live an invitational life. In fact, I would suggest that all spiritual gifts lead to invitation. You see, there are some that you have this incredible evangelistic gift and you're able to jump into conversations and situations and turn any of them into this invitational one. But if you have the gift of hospitality, then let me tell you, God has equipped you to create environments where people are comfortable hearing the gospel. If you have the gift of leadership, then God has equipped you to lead people Uh, to the truth of who God is and what God has done. If you have the gift of encouragement, then God has equipped you to encourage people to see their potential in Christ. All spiritual gifts should lead to an invitational life. But what does an invitational life really look like? You know, as we approach Palm Sunday next weekend and then Easter the, the following week, what does it look like to intentionally live out our primary calling? How can we live this invitational life? Well, that's what I want us to focus on today. And so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on one of your devices, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And Colossians is in the New Testament. You're going to find it after Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. And this is a letter that was written to the church in Colossae, a small little town in what would now be known as modern-day Turkey. And at that time, in the first century, this was right in the midst of an expanding Roman Empire. And frankly, this city did not have a lot going for it. But there was this small, tight-knit community of believers. And some reports had kind of emerged that, that there was some false teaching that was contrary to the message of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to them and reminds them of the message of Christ. In fact, that's what the whole first two chapters are really all about. It's addressing the supremacy of Christ and, and the false teachings. And then in chapter 3, he provides some instructions for believers— He says, hey, if you're a believer, then here's what you should be doing, and here's what you should not be doing. And let me just take a moment to acknowledge that there may be some of you that are here today, or or some of you that are watching at another campus or online, and, and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, not only are are you not a believer, but you may be skeptical of this whole thing. And if that's you, man, I am so glad that you're here. Uh, My hope today is that you will have a glimpse into what Christians are called to, the the standard that's been set for us. Because my guess is that any skepticism that you have uh, may may have more to do with what you've seen in other believers than in the God that we proclaim. In fact, you you may be surprised at what the Apostle Paul has to say to believers in this passage. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 2, and Paul is making this final charge to believers here. And he says, as it relates to living an invitational life, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, it's important to realize that this is an imperative. This is not an option. As followers of Christ, we are to be a prayerful people. And when we think about living an invitational life, if we want to live invitationally, then we need to pray persistently. We need to pray, and pray a lot, 
as believers. We need to pray when we're by ourselves. Pray when, when you're in, in group settings. Pray when you're in brand new environments. Pray when you're in comfortable uh, environments. Pray when you're driving. Just keep your eyes open. You know, and Paul goes on to qualify the prayers. He says that we are to be watchful. In fact, some translations say that we are to have an alert mind. There's this, this sense of urgency that's taking place. It indicates that there's a potential danger, there's consequences if we aren't watchful. I mean, think about a watchman on a ship. Their whole job is to help that ship avoid catastrophic consequences. Or think about any movie that you've seen that has a bank heist. You know, there's always that watchman out front of the bank because there's a sense of urgency. There are dire consequences if they get caught. And Paul is saying we need to devote ourselves to prayer and be watchful because we have an enemy. We have an enemy that wants us to become complacent. We have an enemy that wants us to become comfortable. And let me tell us that, that when we become complacent and comfortable, we stop being watchful. And if we aren't watchful, church, we will miss the opportunities that God brings for us. And Paul goes on not only to say that we should devote ourselves to prayer, but he then tells us what we should be praying for when he gets to verse 3. He says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He says that he is in chains. The very message that he proclaimed is what put him there. And yet his prayer is not, God, would you open the door of my cell? His prayer is, God, would you open the door for the gospel? You see, Paul has learned that, that gospel opportunities are preceded by prayer. And here's a question that I think is worth asking. What do our prayers reveal about our priorities? What do your prayers reveal about your priorities? If we were to do an audit of our prayers, would it reveal a greater concern for our own comfort or a greater concern for the gospel? And let me be the first to say this question has haunted me for the last few weeks. I am not okay with our church with Battle Creek becoming, uh, embracing this idea of comfort care Christianity. We can't be Christians on comfort care. The whole idea of just punching our ticket to heaven and then trying to be as comfortable as we can until we get there, that is foreign in scripture. It's asinine. And I'll just confess to you that I've, I've been praying that God would allow us as a church to be uncomfortable. And, and please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not praying against the consoling comfort of, of God's spirit for those who are hurting. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm praying that God would allow us to not become complacent, that we would not be so comfortable that we become inactive. Yeah. I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I would imagine that if you were to, to think about your home right now, that there is that chair that once you sit in it, it's very hard to get out of it. I mean, this happens to me every Sunday afternoon when I sit on our couch at home. You know, before Sarah and I got married, she decided to get this really nice couch. And uh, we were engaged at the time. And it was at that point in our relationship that we were beginning to talk about finances. And she learned that I'm, I'm a budget person. I love numbers and spreadsheets and, 
and she does not. And she knew that the only way, once we got married, there was no way that that couch was in the budget. And so she was smart enough to buy the couch before we got married. What she didn't tell me is that I was going to have to pay for the couch after we got married. And for anyone that's engaged, I do not recommend that. There is still a root of bitterness in my heart over how much that couch costs. But let me tell you, now that this couch is almost 10 years old, it's comfy. It is comfy. It is broken in in all of the right ways. And now it's at that point that you sit down and it's, it's like it's giving you a gentle hug and just whispering, you're welcome. Which is amazing, but incredibly unproductive. And Sarah has learned that on a Sunday afternoon, that once I sit down, the prospect of going out and about and doing anything else is virtually non-existent. And so she actually, when I come home on Sunday now, she will stand between me and the couch. And she'll say, before you sit down, I I think we ought to go and do this and this, because once you sit, you're not going to get back up. I mean, she's beginning to resent the couch. I'm like, it's your fault. You bought the couch. And you might be saying, Josh, what's the point? The point is too many Christians are striving for the couch, and God is saying, get out of the house. We cannot prioritize our comfort over our calling. We were not called to be passive or to be inactive as Christians. Paul was far more concerned about his message than he was about his comfort. In fact, he's very clear about this. The message is the whole reason that he's in chains to begin with. Carrying out our calling will not always be comfortable, which I think causes us to ask, what are our prayers looking like? What do they reveal about our heart for the lost? If we want to see God answer our prayers, then we need to begin praying for the things that he is concerned with. We don't need to pray for your cousin's cat that ran away. It's probably a blessing from God, actually. (laughs) We need to be praying for opportunities, for for doors to open. Paul is in prison, not praying for the doors of his cell to open, but for the doors of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to open. And, And perhaps you're in a season right now that is one of the most difficult or challenging seasons you've ever come across. Have you considered the possibility that God may be allowing this season to continue because there's a door about to open. Church, I pray that we are not so concerned with our comfort that we neglect our calling. For those of us who are Christians, our trials will always attract an audience of people who are hoping that the God we profess is real. And your greatest trial, your greatest trial may be your greatest evangelistic opportunity. And so Paul, not only is he praying for this door to open, but then he goes on in verse 4, he says, when the door opens, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Pray that the message is proclaimed clearly. I mean, think about that for a moment. Paul wrote the book of Romans. This is one of the richest theological letters that we have in the entire New Testament, and yet he is still concerned with the clarity with which he speaks. It's not enough for us to just simply hold up a sign that says John 3.16 at the end zone of a football game. Our proclamation requires context for the sake of clarity. Now, I, I can't help but think that maybe, maybe Paul is reflecting on something that he said recently. 
I mean, after all, he did just mention that he's in prison. Clearly, he said something that didn't land well. And whether or not that's true, I think it is worth noting that clarity does not guarantee that someone will believe. It is possible to communicate with incredible clarity, only to find that the door was not actually open. I mean, even Jesus experienced this. We see Luke, one of the gospel writers, he records this exchange between Jesus and this rich, rich young ruler in Luke 18. And the ruler asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if someone asked us that question, we would think that's an open door. I mean, this is a slam dunk opportunity for Jesus. And yet Jesus, after he reveals that the ruler's heart needs to change, the ruler walked away sad and unwilling. Jesus was very clear what needed to take place, but clarity does not guarantee that someone will believe the message that we, ro- that we proclaim. However, the phrase, as I should, does indicate a level of responsibility. And there is certainly a, a responsibility for Paul, who, as an apostle, has a responsibility to proclaim the gospel, but this responsibility is not Paul's and Paul's alone. In fact, he continues on to address all believers in verse 5. He says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, those who have yet to believe the message of Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, notice what's not at the beginning of this verse. There's no qualifying statement. He's not saying, hey, be wise in the way that you act when the door is open. He's not saying, make the most of of every opportunity when you feel comfortable or when it's convenient with your schedule. No, we are to be wise in the way that we act and conduct our lives at all times. I mean, this is another aspect of living in invitational life. If we want to live invitationally, then we must walk wisely. In other words, while we're praying for the door to open, don't wait for the door to open to begin living like it is. Every decision that we make, every action that we take as believers is either drawing others in or it's pushing them away. We're either revealing God's love to the world or we're concealing it. Every opportunity is an opportunity to help someone know that there is a God who loves them so much more than they could ever possibly imagine. In fact, just a few verses earlier, in Colossians 3.17, Paul says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Another translation says, Whatever we do and say, do it as if we are representatives of Christ. When you're at work, you're representing Christ. When you're at school, you're representing Christ. When, when you're purchasing groceries, when you're playing video games, when, when you're mowing the lawn, you're representing Christ. When you're leaving a, a Yelp review or posting on social media, I get it. They probably deserved it. And this is why my Yelp account has a different name. I'm blowing someone else's witness, not mine. <laughs> We are representing Christ in all that we do. We're to make the most of every opportunity in all that we do and say. You know, some of you may have heard that quote, preach the gospel at all times and and when necessary, use words. And, And the first part, the first part, preach the gospel at all times, absolutely. 
I mean, that is, that is so biblical. But the second part, when necessary, use words. Let me just tell you, there's nothing theologically accurate about that. We must use words to preach the gospel. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, but how can they, meaning unbelievers, call on him, call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We are not only to live visibly, we are to live verbally. Our witness is not just in actions, nor is it just in words. It's, it's a both-and situation, not an either-or. You see, our actions will validate what we communicate. And what we communicate provides context for our actions. Again, think about the life of Jesus. For 30 years, he lived a perfect and sinless life. For 30 years, as far as we know, no one saw his actions and just assumed by his life that he was God in the flesh and had come to fulfill all of the law and prophets. It wasn't until he began to proclaim his message that people took notice. It was his verbal declaration that provided context for his actions. Church, we are to live visibly and verbally. In fact, we see both of these together when we look at verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act. This is our visible representation towards outsiders. Making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation, your, your verbal speech... Be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You see, walking wisely involves what we say and how we say it. The question I would love to ask is, what are we leading with in our conversations? What is the the main course? What are are the meat and potatoes of what we do? Because according to Paul, it should be grace. We are a people of grace who have been given grace, and and then we are to be suppliers of grace. People won't care what we have to offer until they know that we care for them. And I believe one of the primary reasons that the church has lost credibility in our world is because we often want to lead with something other than grace. Some try to lead with judgment. Others want to lead with condemnation. Some want to lead with issues that are secondary to the gospel. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about those things, but but grace ought to dominate our conversations. We must lead with grace. And that being said, it should be seasoned with salt. Now, now salty speech does not mean foul language or, or questionable language. This is language that is attractive and winsome. This is language that draws people in and and provokes thought. It's being clever and witty and creative. But remember, salt is not the main course. And I think far too often we have an enemy that wants us to believe that we will only be successful in sharing our faith if, if we are somehow as funny as a comedian or as brilliant as a scholar or as creative as an artist. And if that's the standard we're holding ourselves to, then of course we're not going to go about sharing our faith. But that's not what we have to offer. Grace is. Your story, God has given you everything you need to be able to share the story of grace in your life. We're not winning people to eloquent speech. 
We're not winning people to creative phrases. We are winning people to the grace of Christ. In fact, this is the very approach that we see Paul take. He says, when I first came to you, this is speaking to the the church in Corinth. Dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. Some of us can relate to that. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Church, we don't have to gimmick people into the kingdom of God. We don't have to wow people for them to hear the gospel. We simply lead with grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit that's residing within us. We make the most of of every opportunity, of every open door that we encounter. If we want to live an invitational life, if we want to live invitationally, we need to pray persistently. We need to walk wisely. I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. But in an invitational life, it begins with persistent prayer. Who are you praying for? Who is the name of the person that you have been praying to God about? Are you praying for the door to open? I mean, this can be a prayer as simple as, God, give them a need that I can meet. Are we praying for the message of the gospel to be clear? If prayer is simply speaking to God, then then this point is simply speaking to God about people. Are we talking to God about people? And then this invitational life continues on when we walk wisely. We make the most of every opportunity. We we have conversations that are full of grace and, and seasoned with salt. And if this first part is speaking to God about people, this second part is speaking to people about God. And I get that this can be scary. But that fear... I believe is rooted in the belief that it is somehow our responsibility to save people, which is a lie. It's not, it's not our job to save people. It's not your job to save people. You can't. That's God's job. It is unreasonable to assume that every evangelistic opportunity will be successful. Again, Paul is in prison. Because of his proclamation, he, he was not always successful. And when it comes to speaking about our faith, I think our fear hangs us up. And if we're honest, many times it is easier to say no to God than it is to hear a no from someone else. But church, we are not held responsible for the no's of others. We're held responsible for our yes to God. It is not our job to convict or to convince. Scripture tells us we are co-laborers with Christ, that, that God's Spirit is already working ahead of us. We are to join in the work that God is already up to. And, and this is why we pray. We have radars that are tuned into where God may be leading us because if we believe the lie that it is our job to save people, then we will consistently be disappointed. Furthermore, if we believe the lie that success is solely based when someone makes that profession of faith, then we will be consistently frustrated. The truth is, that moment of profession, that crossing the line of faith that we talk about, is only one step in the process of coming to know Jesus. And I hope, 
I pray that every believer has the privilege of helping someone to cross that line of faith. Every believer should strive for and pray for that opportunity. But God may use you in other steps of the process. In fact, a professor at one of the the seminaries here in the U.S. identifies six stages or steps that people typically experience in the process of believing in Jesus. He says that the first one is awareness of the gospel and Christian faith. It could be that Jesus, that that God has brought you to someone for the purpose of, of helping to introduce them to the fact that there is a gospel. People can't profess a faith in Jesus if they don't even know who he is. And and the next step is then perceiving the gospel's relevance to their life. It could be that God has put you in the situation with someone who is struggling. And you're able to go beside them and say, man, I see this pain that you're going through. And let me tell you that the gospel actually provides an answer. The gospel can actually be a remedy for the issue that you're facing. And, And people then begin to respond with interest with questions and and studying scripture. And beyond that, they then begin to experiment with the Christian faith. They come to a service and and begin uh, attempting to join in with a community group. There are some people who will even give to the church financially before they make a profession of faith. It's because they're testing. They're experimenting all before they come to this verbal confession and baptism. And yes, we celebrate this. This is where we should help people get to. And and we celebrate that once they make that profession of faith, that they then get plugged into discipleship. But that's not the only step in the process. In fact, there are some models that will suggest there's as many as 20 stages or steps. And as a church, our goal is to help people advance in their journey with Christ. And so we should celebrate every step along the way. An invitational life should lead someone towards a profession of faith, but it doesn't usually start there. And this is why we've been encouraging all of us at all of our campuses to invest in people, to invite them to Holy Week, because someone walking through our doors for the very first time is a step to be celebrated. I don't know how many of you know of the magician group Penn & Teller from Las Vegas, comedian group, and, and Penn Gillette uh, is a very well-known atheist. And he uh, shared about an encounter that he had with someone who uh, gave him a Bible, and in response to that encounter, he said this. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. And that word just means sharing your faith, trying to win someone to faith. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell, Do you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Church, what seeds are we planting? we really believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, if we truly believe that it is only in Christ that someone can have eternal life, 
Church, we can't just sit idly by. According to a recent study, 10% of those living near our church campuses here in Tulsa are currently seeking. I'm willing to bet that for those of you watching online, that that number is even higher in other parts of the country. Despite the number of churches that are here in Tulsa, one in 10 are currently looking for answers related to faith. They're responding with interest. And what they need, what they need is an encounter with you. They need an encounter with me. They need an encounter with a believer who is living an invitational life. And I love that our church is committed to this. In fact, at Midtown, we have a couple, Alvin and Alicia, that had a friend in need. And so they reached out and said, would you join us at a church service here at Battle Creek? And that friend came and realized they needed to be baptized. And so not only were they baptized, but then the next week they brought their wife with them who made a decision for Christ. And then that couple together realized they had a friend who was also going through a hard time. They invited that friend to come. And when that friend came, they made a decision. And when they were to be baptized, they brought all three of their kids to join in all because of an invitation. Here at Broken Arrow, we had someone that was inviting a friend for months. And over and over, this friend just said, no, not this weekend. No, I've got to work this weekend. Finally saying, I just, the church is too big. I don't think I'll ever come. But finally, she stepped through the doors. And that weekend, she heard the gospel proclaimed, made a decision to trust Jesus, and then two weeks later was baptized. And that baptism was witnessed by her family, her sister, and her sister's kids who had come, and her sister that weekend heard the gospel message and received Jesus. And then her three kids who were in our next-gen environments heard the gospel message, and they all accepted Jesus. They were all baptized. I mean, it is amazing. Amazing what can happen when we live an invitational life. So what's the call to action? What is our call to action Invite your peeps. This is a season where people are historically more open to receiving an invitation than ever before. We must, church, we must live an invitational life. We must pray persistently. We must walk wisely in church. We must be ready because our God is not done yet. Our God wants to do something here in Tulsa and in our nation and around the world that we don't even know the half of. And I can't wait to see what God is going to do. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you now. And God, I pray that as we head out of here today, that for those of us who put our faith and our trust in you, God, I pray that we would feel a God-sized burden to live an invitational life. God, I pray that we would feel that sense of urgency, knowing that there are people that are currently facing a Christless eternity if we don't step in and offer them the grace that we've experienced in our lives. 
So God, would you give us boldness? Would you equip us? God, would you open the doors for opportunity? And may we have the courage to step in and share our story, to bring people with us, knowing that you are the God that saves, that you are the one that is working ahead of us. And God, we are looking forward to celebrating as people continue to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, we want to see heaven here on earth. Would you fill the earth with people who are destined for heaven? It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everybody said, amen.